Hey guys, this is part two of our little chit-chat to Craig O'Shaughnessy, former strategy coach of Novak, the one and only. And um, we left you guys last time a little bit of a cliffhanger about a big match that was about to happen. It wasn't the one with Georgie Dunstan. Don't worry about that. This is something that was apparently, according to Josh, a little bit more exciting. Hope you enjoy. The Australian Open final in 2019, which to me is probably as well as I've ever seen Novak play against one of the best three tennis players of all time. And he frustrated Nadal in a way that I very rarely, well, I don't think I've ever seen Nadal feel like he had no chance to play the game that Mm -hmm. he wanted. He just could not get into his game at all. And he was making uncharacteristic errors. Because as perfect and as accurate as Novak is, part of Nadal's thing is determination and always fighting to get every ball back. What right. what happened in that game? Obviously, Novak went to... You see all the memes on the internet from Dragon Ball Z of him going Super Saiyan with gold flames coming out of his head and all that crazy <laughs> stuff. But yeah. what was it about that game that... Because, I mean, Nadal's obviously got as strong a record against Novak as probably anyone does across a wide gamut of games. What was it in that particular match that just separated those two? The match was over before it started. That, that That's essentially where we start. We don't start at the end of the match. We start before they walk on the court. So these were the, the elements that happened that, that had a bearing, had a big bearing on that. That was a tournament where Rafa, uh, he, I think he played three Australians in a row early on. And I think maybe Duckworth, maybe Millman. Uh, I think Demonor in the third round, and Demonor was gassed. I think Demonor had won Sydney. So, and Carlos Moyer had come out in the press, and they, they talked to him. He's like, yeah, Raph is playing a lot more shorter points, playing more than zero. You know, they're kind of copying what I'm – they're copying Craig. You know, they're, they're not mm-hmm. saying we've learnt this from him, yeah. but, you know, everyone studies everybody else. But that was the conversation with Raph. Oh, we've got Raph at 2.0. We've got not only is he good in long rallies, but now he's killing people in short rallies. And then I think in the fourth round, he had Francis Tiafo. And, and Rafa's building this momentum and he's becoming the favorite in the press and he's getting all the attention. And we're building him up in the press like he's Godzilla. Like there, it's just he is going to win this tournament and he is playing as good as we've ever seen him play. I went in and looked at all the points that he lost against Tiafo, that, that Nadal lost. So he, he, he won in straight sets against TFO. But I go and, and look at all the points. The points Nadal was losing, he's not Superman. They were average, ordinary points. So when I have these meetings with Murray and Vida throughout the tournament, you know, Marion's hilarious. And, uh, you know, he's like, Craig, have we, we figured this guy out yet? Have we figured him out? Um, that, that's, Novak, like, yeah, Mar- that's Novak's coach for people that haven't picked it, that up. Yeah, Exactly. exactly. From day dot, Murray and Vida. And, um, you know, Murray, he's, he's just so funny and, you know, in, in good English, but a little bit of a broken English. And uh, we figured this guy out yet. Have you got him? Have you got him? <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, we keep talking about, oh, Nadal looks good. Oh, everybody, the press, and we're building Nadal up, which, which ultimately helped Novak. So anyway, I go back and I, I say, Marion. Um, and I showed him the video. I go, Marion, look at these points. And he's like, oh, not a good error, not a good error, not a good error. And he's like, Nadal's not playing that good. And I'm like, you're right. 
you're right. People have got it wrong. The press, are, the press want a story, and we're we're building and building um, Nadal up to, to you know to win the tournament. But he's really not playing as good as he wants. The fact that he's also talking about zero through four, five through eight, uh, zero through four rally length, as as well as the five through eight, nine plus, means to me he's a little distracted. He should not be trying. He, he, the, the the shorter points should be naturally flowing. He should not be trying. I've never said no. They try and play short points. I said this is where our focus is. This is where you're going to. This is the strategy you're going to run. And then because of that, then the shorter points will occur. But you don't just go and play short points just to play short points. Uh, another key factor was he, Novak played Lucas Pui in the semis. So I always give game plans out, but you know Novak's going to lock onto them and, and go through them. But especially so when he's never played a guy. He he can't rely on himself. He's not, he's not going to go, oh, yeah, I played this guy six months ago. I kind of remember. I'm going to look at the game plan. But, you know, I, I, I kind of feel how I, I kind of feel it anyway. Against Lucas Pui, you have never played him. So he's got no option. He is 100%. Even if he wasn't, he's 101% into the game plan. And I said, Novak, you you got to serve to his forehand. you got to play his forehand. This is an A-B match. He goes out and destroys Pui because he locked onto the game plan. So now that little precedent of, of following the game plan and having such unbelievable success washed over into the final. So I said, Novak, this is what you do against Nadal, and you only do this. And so he's just – because he's locked on with the semi so much, like, you know, uh, like an octopus onto this thing, he's done exactly the same thing in the final. And he's not deviated and he's not trying other things. He is just all in with what Marin and I provided for that final. And that was it. You know, we, we, we know Rafa, like everybody, has got strengths and weaknesses. We knew where Rafa – there's certain parts of the court that Rafa's weaker. You know, running out wide to hit a forehand, he's weaker. You know, attacking him indeed is weaker, but you got to have ways to set that up. And you know, from the two points in, every shot was to script. The first game, every every points to script. And you know, even before that, people were coming up to me and going, "Craig, what's the you know, oh, Rafa's going to win this?" I'm like, "No, they can straight. No, they can straight." And everybody, and no one was calling that. Wouldn't have been straight. a popular opinion considering I saw no I saw Nadal play against Milman and he crushed him. I actually exactly. saw that in person. He looked incredible, but he wasn't playing people at matchup. Novak's level, obviously. It's a great matchup for him as well. It's a great matchup. So, yeah, it's just it, – it, it's inflated. It's an Australian. It's hype. You know, three Australians are all hype. Um, but essentially, uh, you know, I, I would say if I look back in those three years and say, you know, what were the three best times I, I – I, I made a good game plan and delivered it and, and, and burned it into Novak's brain. That was certainly one of the best three. And that match that match was over before it started. And it probably didn't help that I think he only made five unforced errors in the first two sets. That's, that makes yeah, the game but, plan but run well. <laughs> it does, but there's also another way to that is that you don't make unfor- unforced errors. Are you trying to do something you really shouldn't? And it's really a testament to Novak. And, and this goes back to an earlier question that I don't think I even answered. It's like, what makes Novak so special? He's, you know, I think I talked about the, the opponent there. His ability, I give Novak a game plan. That's what we're going to see. I mean, he's got, he, he, there's various degrees. There's the 98% locked on. There's the 99%. There's the 100 With other players, it's like they'll forget it after the first set. They'll completely forget it. Gone. History. They don't even know they're changing it. So Novak's ability to understand the opponent and to follow the game plan. And, you know, it's why classes are 50 minutes long because kids 
lose concentration. Novak's ability to maintain concentration and never lose it is unbelievable. So that brings just to my second game, sorry, Mel, and this is the one that I think we're all hedging towards because I want to talk about your involvement with Wimbledon more broadly. But the 2019 Wimbledon final was one of the most beautiful and at times ugly matches that I think has ever happened. But that was, I watched that entire game. I think it clocked in at five and a half hours. Or I think yeah. I started watching it at midnight and I didn't go to sleep till 20 past five. That was against Roger Federer. How do you make a game plan for the first time ever, Craig, that they're going to go to the extent, they're basically going to go to a fifth set tiebreaker after the 12th game? How do you make a game plan for something that's never happened in a tournament? And how did Novak, I, I mentioned earlier that sometimes as a fan, it's frustrating because in that those last few games of that match into the tiebreak at the end and the other tiebreaks, he has a way of going up a level out of nowhere and just being pretty much unbeatable for a period of games. It's frustrating that he doesn't do that more of the time. As a fan, sometimes you're like, well, you seem to not be going into God mode here. But how do you make a plan for something that's never happened before? Or did he just have to back himself through those last period of that match? Well, the first thing is it's you gave a, a very <clears throat> excuse me, typical label um, or, or description that, that he elevates his game. So in the three times, but it's more like a lockdown than an elevation. It's, it's exactly, yeah, exactly. It's like he's just it, gone brick wall, and right. Yeah. In, in the three tiebreakers, Novak ended up at the net more than Roger did, which is just when in the three tie, you know, in the first, third, and fifth set, you it, Roger didn't do his game plan at all, and Novak locked on it and did it religiously. Um, you know, I've gone through those three tiebreakers and, and written stories about those three tiebreakers. And, you know, what, what essentially happened there is Roger was really good from the back of the court. Novak spent the entire afternoon basically on defense and fighting and surviving and, you know, and, and hanging in there. But in the, when it mattered in those three tiebreakers, he hit every ball to the part of the court that he should. He locked down Roger's backhand. He didn't let him hit runaround forehands. And then he also attacked him out wide to the juice court, which is the running forehand. I mean, the running forehand is, is, is the key. You know, backhands essentially don't yield enough errors for you to consistently attack at it. It's the running forehand out wide that does. So when push came to shove in that match, you know, Novak defended uh, for, for a lot of the time. But in, in general there, it was, it, was really, it was really Novak just saying, I'm going to make Roger hit backhands. I'm going to put the ball on the court. And that's, that's how it's going to end up. So... It was a little bit more along those lines than than than, than an elevation. Runner, right there you go. So, just with Wimbledon, you've said before that you used to wake up pretty much at midnight as a kid here in Albury, and yeah, luckily enough, I guess Wimbledon was on the channels back then, and you used to watch it pretty much until you went to school. Can yes. you tell us about maybe your path to how you got into Wimbledon as a sport? Because it seems very special to you. And then how yeah. you, and you had a big moment a couple of years ago at Wimbledon as a culmination of I guess your relationship with that tournament. Yeah, exactly. You know, I I played Aussie rules football. I you know as a kid that was my number one sport. I played you know at, at Albury Public School. Then I played at Albury High School. I played for the Albury Tigers. I greatly enjoyed it. I played half forward flank and a bit of rover and just kind of ran around and just had a blast. But around. So I got. Uh, I started. Didn't play. Start playing tennis. So I was t almost thirteen, twelve, thirteen, and then around 
16, my parents said, okay, Craig, you've got footy, you've got school, and you've got tennis. You know, you got too much. One's got to go. I said, well, see you later, school. (laughs) 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 They said, not quite. So, so yeah, around 16, I don't think I played under 18s. Maybe I just started, but then I got really involved in tennis. But but I loved it. You know, I, I lived. Ten doors up from the Forest Hill Tennis Club, you know, three courts in in that in, in a section. And George Schumach was, uh, you know, the old coach back there, and Frank Tynan and Phil Shanahan, Ken Wirtz, Rodney Wirtz, you know, all of these guys were my mentors. And I, I was down there seven days a week. You know, early on, tennis hooked me. And you know, in the summer, you go down and play on the grass. And Frank Tynan, you know, had a huge bearing on me. And I used to play with Paul Spargo um, a lot, and Nick Spargo, um, his brother, you know. Th- two footy players from Albury and, you know, tennis was a really big deal. So Wimbledon was a really big deal. And John McEnroe had just come on the scene, you know, back then it was, you know, 79, 80, 81. I'm in high school and I'm all into tennis and, you know, I'm playing my, my first pennant, you know, Paul and I, and I think Mark Lanham and Nick Sparger, we played, we played, you know, it goes A1, A2, A3, B1, B2, B3. That was it. Six divisions in winter or maybe winter and summer. So we, we started in the worst division, B3, and won it. And they put us, because we did better, they put us the next season in winter. So in summer, we got a B1 and win it. And then the next season, we got an A2 and win it. And then we're in A1. And and I think, um, I don't know whether we won A1 that year, but certainly in the next one, we won A1. So I had this really quick progression through junior tennis in Albury because I played every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I literally played every day. I got on my bike. I went down. I just played till it was dark. And I played set after set after set. And I was so hooked on it. And Wimbledon became this unbelievable, faraway Disneyland place that almost didn't exist. It wasn't even real. It was just fantasy land. It was so unique. And I just fell in love with it. And so I would come home and go to bed early and I'd watch it. And then you got Borg and McEnroe and Connors going at it. So, I mean, the, the, the best time. And then I, at a high school, I graduated high school in 81. No, I graduated high school, excuse me, in 84, in 84. Then I worked for the Border Mail, and I go to Wimbledon in 85. I go with Frank and Maury Tyne, and we do a little tour around Scotland and, and England, and we see some early rounds. We come back. I am Frank and Maury and I, three boys from Albury. We are at the 1985 Wimbledon final to watch Boris Becker win. We're there. We're <laughs> wow. like 10 rows behind the Royal Box. And it's the greatest thing you've ever seen. How it's old like, was Becker had, in, that, in that final? He was quite he's, young. I'm older than him. I'm older than him. I think <laughs> he was 18. He just turned 18. I was 19. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I hated him for that. But anyway, so I, I, I was there for that magical experience. And and then I've gone back over the years. And now, I, you know, the last three years, I've been the, the strategy analyst for the Wimbledon Channel. So I've got, a, I've got my touch board. You know, I, I think a lot of it is it's, it's a collision of three pathways that are not normal. These three pathways don't normally collide. So the first is I played a lot as a kid. You know, I just played a ton. And it's not necessarily that, you know, I didn't play on the pro tour, but, you know, the passion, the passion to to be involved in the sport. Then the coaching side. You know, I've coached for a lot of years now. And I've coached, you know, Novak to win, you know, two Wimbledons and Grand Slams. But I've coached a lot of junior academy tennis and a lot of kids and a lot of ladies doubles. And, you know, 30 years of coaching. But then there's also the technology side. You know, I'm really into the technology side. So, you know, I I know the sport, I've coached the sport, and I know the tech side of it. And I guess you also add in, I can relate it because I've got a journalism degree and I work for the Border Mail. So I I can relate what I'm learning. You know, it's not often you get 
the tech side and the journalism side. Oh, and the guy's coach for 30 years as well. Those three don't typically come together. You know, you, you find a coach that doesn't know how to say what he's doing, or you find a journalist that doesn't really understand the sport, or you find a nerd, a tech nerd that, that you know, can't apply it. They, they can't make it, they can't make it relatable. So I think it's a combination of all those things that, that kind of make what I do a little bit different. You're the ultimate slashy. There we go. There you go. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that term before. I've, I think I've made it up a few times. I've heard there. you say that about one other thing, and it <laughs> yeah. was completely contextually different. So, Is it the slash outside off stump? It just kind of happened to nah, swing at everything. Nah. <laughs> yeah, well, no. Okay. It's, you've got to... You've got to be across so many different areas to be good at it. But like you were saying, like with your other statements, you don't necessarily have to be the best at it all. Exactly. But to exactly. be across it. So um, obviously that, that puts you in a much higher um, stratosphere than a lot of other people that can only slashy a couple things. So <laughs> I like it. Being a coach slash analytics expert slash former player, etc. You had the opportunity to do something at Wimbledon that I don't think anyone outside of a certain group of grounds people had ever had the opportunity to do. Right. And I remember I heard you tell this story on the local radio here a couple of years ago, and you just lit up yeah. talking about it. Yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you had the chance to do, Craig, at Wimbledon that few people have? Yeah, I mean, apart from having kids and getting married and all that stuff, I mean, there's nothing compared. And, and your dogs on um, Instagram. <laughs> yeah, my dogs. I, I love my dogs. Um, it, so it's it's the final. It's the final of Wimbledon. And, I, you know, it's it's 20, um, 2018, and Novak's uh, playing Kevin Anderson. So I, I've first of all, I've coached Kevin for a period of time, and I, I'm, I'm now currently working with Novak. So I've got, you know, a little history with both players and a lot of history currently with Novak. So not only that, not only do you say, oh, my goodness, I'm delivering the game plan and I'm coaching the guy and doing the strategy to win a Wimbledon final. That's the ultimate. It's absolutely the ultimate for any person. So I've got that in it. Then I'm working for the Wimbledon channel and I commentate it. I mean, to commentate, to be in a booth on Wimbledon Centre Court and commentate that, that's another goal. But it gets better. It gets better. Grant Canton is the head groundsman at Wimbledon and a great friend. You know, I come from the Aubrey grass courts. Shane Reed, who is currently the, the <laughs> groundsman for Aubrey and Wodonga. Yeah. I hired Shane full-time in Wodonga. You know, when Shane, Shane had only been on the job as a as, as kind of the second, second in-line groundsman um, at the Wodonga Tennis Centre and then uh, I think it was – Paul Prentice was was the groundsman, and he left. His wife got a job somewhere else, and he left. And so they're like, oh, let's do this big search all over Australia for the best groundsman. I'm like, no, we're hiring Shane. Shane, we're elevating him. So Shane goes over and, and, and does um, a stint at Wimbledon over one of the years. And through Shane, he introduces me to Neil Stubbley and Grant Canton. And I get be, get to be great friends with these guys. So we we have 9 o'clock coffees. On set, we sit on the side of centre court. And with the two groundsmen, we talk we talk grass courts. I mean, it's just heaven. Yeah. It's the best thing ever. And and then, you know, Grant and Neil, they invite me out on a center court. I mean, I I'm walking on center court, you know, they're like it gets it's torn up here and I, you know, I get to walk on it and touch it and feel it, you know, on a regular basis over the years. Which is another level. I mean, that's that's it's the most prestigious piece of turf in the world. So then Throughout the tournament, uh, you know, Grant, they put the nets up. And I, I talked to Grant. I'm like, you know, uh, I'd, I'd love to be able to put a net up. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, he goes, literally, no one except the groundsman's ever done it. 
that I, I'm going to let you do it. I'm going I'm to let you do it. I'm like, mate, come on. Are you serious? He's like, yeah. So I was supposed to do it. I was supposed to. There's like a 12 o'clock time that they do it. I was supposed to do it during other rounds. And I think one day I forgot at 12. Another day I, I think I had a something to do for the Wimbledon channel. And I missed. And Grant's like, you missed your chance again. You missed your chance again. And then it gets to the final. And I'm like, I go, there's no way this is going to happen. He's going to let me do this. There's so, something's going to go wrong. But at 12 o'clock, I turn up and he's like, you're here. And he goes, and he goes, give me your phone. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, I'm going to record it on your phone. So I, he goes, you're going to take the net. I go, what am I going to do? He's like, you're going to take the net post. You're going to take it out. You're going to put it in the ground. You're going to clip it into the ground. You're going to put the net on and you're going to wind it up. You're going to do all that. Today's your day. And that's what I did. I put this 50-pound post on my shoulder and walked out on center. I, mean, I was fire floating. Was there etiquette the about how you had to do that? Were you familiar no, with the etiquette I, or just the, the best don't way hurt is yourself? It has to be on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. if you kind of carry it here, it can get, you know, you, you can drop it. And the last thing you want to do is put a big dent in center court yeah. on the last day. So <laughs> put it on the shoulder, hold it firmly, walk it to the other side of the court, take it off the shoulder, and then there's there's a metal plate in the ground and, and there's a clip. And so you, you kind of set it's, it's, it's square and you center it down and you, you hear it clip. And once it clips, it's in. So there's no kind of, it's not kind of a bend. And once, once I clip it in, it's like, is this happening? And, and he's, he's filming it. He's filming it. Um, it's video. So then, you know, we get the net and I wind it up and, and I mean, literally it's the greatest thing ever. To, to, to I wish that people could the see final. the look on Craig's face right at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's a look of pure I mean, joy. I, I don't know why, and I don't know whether why it, it's this way, but I got as much pleasure out of putting the net up as I did of coaching the guy to win it because I just have that tournament and that place on such another level. And to do something that nobody's ever done is, you know, it's, it's amazing. So, and then he wins it. And then he wins it. So I mean, what what other box can I tick? Yeah. Um, and it was the so start. Yeah, that, it was the restart of his ascendancy. That particular. Yes. And was, Anderson it, had just beaten Federer, and like he was coming in in as good a form as he probably ever been in. Like at that point, like that deep into a tournament. So. Yeah, but the, and the thing too is that um, Kevin had that really long match against Isner in the semis. Was it 16, 14, I think it was 20, 2018 or something in the fifth, and that gassed him. So, you yeah. know, that was a match. You, not only do I know Kevin inside out and his patterns, but, you know, and, and Novak broke him in the first game, and I'm like, this was already over, but after that break in the first game, you know, I, I could announce, everybody, patrons, we can all leave. They must finish the match. They must keep playing. But if you want to leave now, you can. And don't forget, I put the net in. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I'm let go. <laughs> can I just say, I've never heard anyone so excited to put the nets up. Like, from a local yeah. tennis perspective, <laughs> that's a, the last job right. that you want oh, to do. God. And be God, you do not want to be the one that has to roll them up at the end of the day either <laughs> to get yeah. the roll of putting the nets up just also blows my yeah. mind completely because that's just like the chore to do <laughs> the start of the thing. Well, and how uh, do you measure? I, Is it just to your uh, hip? Well, I think, well, <laughs> uh, there, there's, they, they have an official stick and uh, the stick goes up past the top and then there's a line on the stick. And so, you know, you can it, you can be exactly right. But I think, you know, my first my first ever job I ever got money for was was the uh, rolling and preparing on a Saturday morning the Forest Hill tennis courts. Yeah. So I would go down there early at nine and I'd water them and roll them and line them and then put the nets up. 
And, you know, that's that's what I did. That was my first job um, ever. So, you know, put, putting a net up is is something that is so mundane, but I somehow found a way to make it one of the greatest highlights of my life. <laughs> that's awesome. It's... um. It, it, I don't think a lot of people appreciate the work that goes into to making those courts what they are. And I do I do yeah. know Shane Reed and I, I did have him written down to mention him because yeah. um, I'm best friends with his wife actually and it's often like, what's Shane up to? Oh, he's just you know, popping off to do the Davis Cup courts and they're just right. like right. Wodonga is very privileged to have such an amazing facility over there that he looks after and potentially a lot of locals around here don't actually wouldn't have even heard of his name or no cuz he's sort of a bit of a under the radar like you hey and mm-hmm. uh what we have here on our doorstep is is an amazing talent and to like you said he's been over to Wimbledon and he introduced you to those people that then got you to put so does it do you owe him a drink have you I, bought I him a drink yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I, don't, don't worry. I bought. I bought. We've had we've had beers at at Wimbledon. We, we've both been over there. Shane and I. Uh, were, I think it was the twenty. When did Roddick? He beat Roddick. What year was that? Federer beat Roddick. Two thousand and four, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think. I think Mid-2000s, Shane and I were both yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we both crammed into. The, he was working with Channel Seven, he, uh, kind of doing two gigs there and. Um, we both got into that. You know, there's that really low slit where the TV cameras go close yeah. to the courts. Shane, Shane and I were both in there, crammed in there watching that final. Um, Shane's a massive Federer fan, massive. Yeah. So, you know, he's not too happy that um, I spent a few years in Novak's camp. But, um, <laughs> yeah, Shane, Shane and I, you know, when I, I, I moved back and took over, I was the club, I became the president of the club in Wodonga and then the club coach. And, and and Shane came on during that period. So yeah, we've got we've got wonderful history. Great guy, and you know he, he's 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 excelled. He's the best in the business. Can I ask a question? But just to finish up today, Craig, and you've been super generous yeah. with your time. And obviously, as a tennis nerd, I've been just this is the most excited I've been about anything uh, in a while. Yeah, <laughs> just, it's usually me that's jumping up and yeah, down yeah. on the seat. I'm just like just just chill, chill. chill I'm, chill I'm the one that has to chill today. <laughs> the just. When it comes to Aubrey Wodonga, and this show yeah. mostly is made for this part of the world and we feature people from around here and also people that have a history with the place. If people ask you about where you grew up, people in Austin or if you travel around the world, yeah. what is it yeah. that you tell them about Aubrey Wodonga that maybe allows them to understand it's a special place to you or what you find special about it? Yeah, it's you know, there's, it's a, I don't think there's a better place in the world to grow up. I really don't. I mean, you know, I had such an amazing time, you know, Albury Public School, then Albury High School. My dad ran Albury Motors early on. Then um, we had a house at Gingelic. So, we, you know, we'd pop up to Gingelic all the time. My sister married a farmer and they were down at Finley. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time as a young kid on the farm, you know, as an outdoor area with the hills and the, you know, the, the lake and the mountains and the skiing and you know, you, you, you've got everything. I mean, it, there's it, some of these kids that grow up in big cities that all they see is this concrete jungle and, you know, they live in high-rise apartments. I mean, I grew up in Forest Hill Avenue and, you know, you couldn't hope for a better childhood. You know, you're riding your bike around everywhere. You're in a country town. Everybody knows everybody. The quality of life is amazing. You can go to Melbourne. You can go to Sydney if you, 
you know, I, I played one winter at Pennant where I got on the train at 7 a.m. and went down to Melbourne and played and came back at 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday. And, you know, if, if you want to go bigger, you go bigger. You know, it's, it's there. Sydney and Melbourne are there. But, you know, my childhood and the, the quality of life, the simplicity and quality, and, you know, it allows you to be a kid. It allows you to play sport. I mean, we are just mad about sport. And, you know, it's very, very special to come back. You know, I tried to move back once and it, it just it, it just wasn't the right time in my life. You know, where, where I am now in the States, you know, I'm close. You know, last year I had eight trips to Europe. I mean, un- unbelievably tough to do that out of Australia. You know, and then I'm, I'm in Europe and I'm in I'm, I'm back in Australia. So at, at the moment, you know, what with what I want to do, it's it, I, I'm attracting and wanting to do a global audience. You know, I love taking what I do and delivering it to Italy and delivering it to Australia and delivering it to China and going all over the world and going to these different places, um, going down to Mexico and doing it. So it's just a good fit. And Austin feels like Australia. It's a real country feel. You know, as I mentioned, I see coyotes walking by the back of my uh, of my house out here. But, you know, there is no place like home. I am dying to get back in January. I hope it's possible, you know, if it is if it is possible to come back with the coronavirus, whether, whether the Australian opens on, whether it's, it's possible for me to come back, I, I hope it is. But, um, you know, I, I would say that there is no better place in the world, any country, any spot, raise your kids in Albany, Wodonga. Awesome. It's a pretty big testament right there. <laughs> it is. And just, yeah. I mean, you're a testament too, Craig, of someone that is from, and Mel and I have talked about this with past guests before, the fact that you grow up in a city, well, globally, that no one's probably ever really heard of, and even within Australia isn't one of our 10 biggest cities by any means doesn't mean you can't do something at a world-class level. There's of course. A, yeah. I, I think it more so it, it sets you up for that. It gives you appreciation. I mean, we're a country town and the world's out there. And if you want to go conquer it, go get it. And, you know, Albany's a very successful, dynamic, confident city um, or, or, or cities. And, you know, I, I think growing up there was a perfect springboard for me to do what I'm doing right now. I don't think in any form or fashion it – it held me back. In fact, I, I think it, it, it set the stage perfectly. That's amazing. So can you just give a shout out to your own social connections and that so everyone can get on and learn how to tap into other people's brains better? <laughs> well, if you if you like tennis, my website's braingametennis.com. Uh, if strategy, if, if you know, there's, there's entry-level stuff in there, there's more advanced stuff in there, but that's what I do. I am on Twitter um, because it's just instant. You know, you're at a tournament, you travel. I, I've got uh, – on my camera roll on my iPhone, I've got 73,000 photos. Uh, I take photos – you know, I, I basically you – know, I'm a tennis co- – I'm a photographer who does tennis coaching. And, but I'm an iPhone photographer. I just love taking pictures of places I go to and, and, and my family and my dogs. And, you know, just photos are good. So on Instagram, I put stuff out on there. On Twitter, is more about – more instant stuff. They're all a little bit different, and sometimes I do a lot more on social than not. So that's that's, that's kind of where you can find me. Craig, I'm running out of slashes. You can't keep throwing more <laughs> yeah, things. Just in slash there. Apple photographer. Yeah, slashy this, slashy that. <laughs> could, I I have, <laughs> could I just finish up with just one last thing, Craig? If you have a sec. Yeah. Yeah. Given where you are in the world, can you just tell everyone just to finish up the names of your dogs and how that plays in Texas? My dogs are Pompey and Ash. <laughs> and they're, ger- they're German short hair pointers and they're, they're grey. 
Uh, they're, they're like a gray and black pointer. Some German Shepherd pointers are brown. But, you know, you're looking for dogs' names. You look at them and, and you know, you look gray and you Google gray, gray dog and, you know, you eventually come up with ash, which is gray. And I just – I've literally just come back from um, from Italy and I've just driven by Mount Vesuvius. I've just driven right by Pompeii. And, you know, ash leads itself to volcano. And i just actually driven by Mount Etna um, down in Sicily. And, and I'm like, you know, it, it just it, – that's how it went. It was a gray dog turns into ash, turns into where I just was in Italy, turns into Pompeii and ash, and that's how you know your dogs. Yeah, and they're very, very awesome. I follow you on Instagram, mate. So, yeah, they're great. If nothing else, follow uh, yeah, the well, dogs, people. Follow the dogs. And, and Ash is special because she's half German shorthead, she's half greyhound. She's got one brown eye and one blue eye, and she runs like the wind. So, uh, yeah, I, I love them to death. I, I, I run them three times a day now. I get on my bike and go on the trails, and they run, and they have a blast. So they're, they're, in, a, they're in a good place. And they're chasing road runners, which are chasing coyotes, I'm assuming. Yes, they are, and they they like the odd squirrel too. They really uh, they really get after the squirrels. Excellent. Well, Craig O'Shaughnessy, thank you so much for joining Punching Sideways from our little My part pleasure. of the world. Being someone from here, we're very proud of everything you're doing as a tennis fan. It's been one of my life goals, really, to talk to someone that's been around the sport and in depth in these huge matches, which I've watched and rewatched many times. So, thank you and. Thanks for working out Georgie Dunstan for me. Just about 25 years too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of Georgies over the years. Josh and Mel, thanks so much. Great to connect with you guys. Great to connect back with Aubrey. And um, I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. Thanks Thank so you very much. much. See you, mate. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Wowzers. I'm wide awake now. So am I. Yeah, that was really, really cool. Craig O'Shaughnessy, so many local connections. As he's just like pilfering names out at me, Paul Spargo from like I remember him coaching. Is this like an Aubrey High year level that just went off to do impressive things in sport? I got that vibe. It was like a little bubble. Yeah. All these people that have had impacts in different sports at different levels. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did you get the feeling that these were people that were fresh in his mind? It's not like some people that move away from an area and they remember the you know the well-known names, but he's remembering specific situations that each of them were in with him is kind of kind of cool. Josh is an analyst. He, he's got all those details. I don't know where he stores a slash it. Analysis. I, uh, he's a slashy <laughs> slash analysis slash like all those details. Like when he's describing where he lives and talking, like you said, about the limestone and yeah. all that. There's so much level of detail around everything in his brain. He's amazing to talk to. I mean, to. I'm somewhat analytical about certain things, but I don't go straight to the bedrock <laughs> when I'm talking about where I grew up. Maybe we should. That could be what happens. We should find out what the bedrock is where we are if right now. If you're a now. geologist yeah. from this area and you're listening to this, from Wagga through to Wangaratta, this yeah. whole region, we'd love to talk to you about the bedrock. Yeah, I want to know the bedrock. I just think of Flintstones when you're saying bedrock. Did you ever know. notice that he only had about four or three or four motions for moving and they would reuse them in every seat? <laughs> yeah. that, that can ruin the Flintstones yeah, for you. Yeah, that's true. Well, don't. Oh, thanks very much. So we're talking that. about ancient times there, but Craig is very much in the present and the future. So He was in the future before the future even knew it was going to happen. It felt a bit like <laughs> that. One thing that we didn't get to that maybe one time, in sometime in the future we could have him mm-hmm. back on to talk about quickly would be the resistance in sports to 
a step change in analytics. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just happen in tennis. It happens in a lot of sports where there's an initially, a, oh, that's not real or that can't be as helpful as you're telling us it is. Do you know, I didn't want to interrupt him when he was uh, talking about that, but even on a minor level with, with concussion testing and that that I've had to do with, with with football, it's almost like, oh, you know, that's that's too far ahead. Yeah. for us to be dealing with. And I was dealing with it like around the Telanga League and that sort of thing. And there is a resistance to new things and change that hasn't been tested. So for someone to strive and sort of be able to stand firm and know that it's it's going to be a thing and either get yeah. on board or you're going to miss out yeah. is uh, a pretty impressive person. So, And you're right. Like what you're talking about, obviously – exponentially more serious mm. than something like an analytics on a tennis court with concussion protocol. But anyone that's on the the bleeding edge when it comes to ideas mm-hmm. does tend to get a lot of a lot of pushback, even at you know lower levels of sport. They're like, yeah. oh, well, we don't have the room, the resources, or the trust in to bring that into our kind of club or our sport. And it's also people, dare I say, are afraid of hard work. It's almost like, oh, that seems like a lot of work to yeah. do that. And you're like, well, yeah, there's sometimes work produces good things. <laughs> like yeah. the level of work you put in is often, I think I've said, I spit this repetitively, but like the harder you work, the luckier you get and, and the more things that sort of come and land in your yeah. lap, and I the, suppose. I guess the more ready you are for the luck you do get. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good point. And it doesn't sound like, Craig was afraid of the work, but just he obviously there was a few things getting to luck that he just had made these contacts which he mm-hmm. fostered. And just on the call today, mm-hmm. you felt like it was a very uh, it's very familiar. Yeah, but there wasn't a barrier between him and us. I didn't feel even though there's a, a Skype machine, but a Skype machine. Do you know what I I think about this whole thing that resonates with me is that it seems like. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are, who's going to treat you the same. And it's something that I try to carry through with everyone. And the fact that I, I know I, I could sense that you're like, oh, my God, like he's talking to Novik, like a real a Novak. Oh, my God, <laughs> Novak, like a real person. But it, that's all he is. Like yeah. he's just a person. And the fact that he's not intimidated by that or anything and the way that obviously he's fostered these relationships it seems like he just carries that through to to every sort of part that he is yeah. engrossed with. Just I, you're right. I was caught off guard a little bit how he spoke about the casual way that he treated those conversations. Yeah. When in my mind, these people are gods, but they've also mm-hmm. grown up in as extreme a sports a bubble as you can grow in. Cause yeah. It's just an individual sport, and to be elite like a Novak, Nadal, Roger, that yeah. level, you have to do it from when you're a very very young kid. Yeah. And Craig's just talking to these people about their games like they're the 14-year-old boy that wants to learn. Yeah. Like, yeah, it takes a little bit of a – I think you've got to be somewhat likeable. I don't yeah. think I'd be the type of person that could deliver that kind of news to people. <laughs> he, he was a very likeable guy. And um, it's just fascinating. And the, the more he talked, the more it tweaked my brain into just being more interested how that – Obviously, that all came out in 91 is when they started doing statistics for tennis and the fact that that's so far behind everything else. And then you think about football where 
there's such a high um, weight put behind strategy and analysing opponents and everything like that. And that tennis, obviously with him, is coming ahead in leaps and bounds, but it, it was so far behind as well. Yeah. It's very interesting. And, and he's obviously, just from tracking him online, there's the polite tennis set that are very much traditionalists in the fact that it's a sport for natural talent only mm-hmm. and they don't love the level that he breaks down the game. Yeah. And it, I mean, not every, I mean, the you, purest. The purest of, it yeah. should be two natural super talents just hitting balls at each other and analytics don't have a place in the sport. That's just silly. It is silly. Yeah. I know there was a little bit of flack, wasn't there, when he broke down Ash Barty and analysed her and poor old Ash got beaten. Yeah. And, they were like, I think it was something along the lines of, and you probably got the direct quote of this stored in your head, Josh, but like how can you, you go against an Australian like that and, and get her beaten? And I think Craig was pretty much like, I don't work for tennis is a natural, uh, is a, an international sport. Yeah, I it's don't work not, for Tennis Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Which, it, yeah, true, yeah. true, true, true. I um. One thing I, I would like to sort of – I'd love to see him in person, I think. I don't know. Just I, to get a feel for the guy in person. Yeah, well, I'm actually going to hit up Shane now. So now that I've talked to Craig, I want to see – Well, you brought it up in the interview. We've got – and it's from talking to people that lead to other people yeah. too. You don't always – and this is a connection for everyone listening that Mel already kind of had but didn't realise. That it was connected <laughs> Quite as strongly, maybe, or as directly yeah. as what, yeah, you now know that it is that there's a kind of a triangle there. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah my one of my best friends that I grew up with, her husband is Shane, who's been over to Wimbledon and does the Wodonga tennis courts and does an amazing job over there. And, and I don't think there is necessarily a real appreciation unless you're in that bubble, I think, mm. which I think is, is, across all boards. Like unless you start getting involved in the music scene, you don't really appreciate or know the depth of what we have around here in Albury Wodonga for say. So that's a that's a faux pas on me. So I apologize about that and I will <laughs> Yeah. But it brings the you brought up music. It highlights that and particularly as an artist, I always found it's very easy to forget the risks that other people are taking, whether it's putting you know, you put a band on, you have to have five more security guards over mm-hmm. a certain number of people or whatever the rules happen to be at the time. Like that's something I wish I could go back and just know that I'm going to appreciate every person working at these venues that I'm playing at, mm-hmm. the people that booked us, the people that are doing the sound. They're going out and they're working these weird hours and you think they get paid a fortune but they're there from 12 till 3 in the morning and their hourly rates like they're flipping burgers. Yeah. I really wish I could go back and just understand that everybody is giving time and effort and like with the music around here at the moment venues just have to work it's just everyone like obviously there's the the people that everyone know but every part of that puzzle is just as important without the sound guy the musos don't get hurt without the lighting you can't see them like there's so many different bits yeah. that go into that like, ne- the- i never went sorry to a, a when we got compliments about how great we sounded, I never went to the sound tech and mentioned. I mean, you sometimes you would if you happen to be hanging out with them, but I never made intentional efforts to say, 
look, just so you're getting this feedback too, we've been we got told we sounded really good tonight. That's all you because we're the same band. Yeah. <laughs> like it's something that I mean, if anyone's listening to this and you're younger, particularly take these things on board that mm-hmm. there's layers of work going on behind so much stuff that people don't get thankful. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing we are incredibly fortunate and Craig Craig just highlighted how much, how fortunate we are to be living in Aubrey Wodonga, but off mic he mentioned that the day we've spoken to him there was thirty thousand cases of coronavirus diagnosed. New cases, was it? New or cases. New in cases Texas or in Texas. Non America, in Texas. I think it was Texas. <laughs> Holy crap. You were yeah. Um I think you weren't there. I was just chatting to him and so that's and and we're complaining about sort of, you know, our restrictions and everything like that. But he was saying he is self containing that their family himself because it's it's so scary out there pretty much that yeah. you just need to just hole up and stay inside. Otherwise you there's so much risk outside. Jeez. Yeah. Okay, that's intense. It is intense. So this is probably an inappropriate place to ask for a coffee, but well, <laughs> let's do it. Yeah, let's have a coffee. Oh, I wouldn't mind a coffee. I did have to get up real early for this. Yeah. And I did work last so, night. So you're not as over it as what you said you were in the intro? No, I'm definitely – no, I'm actually – I'm one of those annoying people that once they're up – and talking there, like, on immediately. Yeah. It's like, why are you doing this to me? You at were this like, time? I was working my way up to 100Ks an hour, and you were already at 100. <laughs> and I think we had a little bit of a head-on collision to begin I with. I think that was, yeah, a bit of a head-on collision. You should. Yeah. I've normally got a lot of the setup done before you get here, though, so that was partly my fault. I didn't get – I got down here 15 minutes late. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's on you. Yeah, it's really my fault. It's actually Somehow. nothing to do. It's always your fault. Yeah, no. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> deflect. Deflect, right. deflect, so deflect. You can deflect us a few coffees at mm-hmm. supportpunchingsideways.com. We really appreciate the people who have done that recently. Yes. We'll give a shout out in a, an episode that Mel and I are just going to do soon to everybody who supported us lately. So We yeah. need to do an episode because the whiteboard is getting very full. We have a board that's getting full and I've got other stuff in my messenger from people that also should be going on the board. So Oh, really? Yeah, just yeah, I've got to go back through it now and cool. actually put them on there. We might have to get another whiteboard or just start doing a few well, episodes. Well, we, we could throw our coffee money straight at a new whiteboard. Yep. Yep. So if you can buy us a coffee so we can get a whiteboard and we can keep um, adding more ideas and it basically it evolves around me doing stupid stuff, I think. Yeah. And my there's a few on there of me saying just random things that are not at the same level of thought that I normally would. <laughs> and I look at them now like, yeah, I said that. Yeah. That was stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Righto. Thank you, Mel. Thanks so much to Craig. To anyone who's uh, yes. listening through this, thanks for sticking that one out. I know that it was very tennis-centric and it was very much for me, but hopefully it was also for you guys a little bit because of the... Yeah, what about me? What about my needs, Josh? Yeah, what about you, man? <laughs> yeah, because you never get anything you want. <laughs> never. Righto, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Laters. This episode was edited by Deadset Podcasting. If you want your podcast to sound this good, check out deadsetpodcasting.com forward slash services. Get the sound you're chasing.